This podcast may include adult content. Bound Up is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. The Truth of Grapes by Kelly Lynn H. Riley and The Metaphor Pusher by Aaron Fox Lerner. The Truth of Grapes, written and read by Kelly Lynn H. Riley. Listening time, 6 minutes, 37 seconds. The Truth of Grapes by Kelly Lynn H. Riley. There's the bottle of Merlot, half full, and a candle to transform the dusk. There's Lisbeth in her fluttery first-date dress, posing at an outdoor table with her ankles crossed. And there's the man, neatly shaven, two buttons out of three secured. I've been where you are, he's saying. When my ex and I called it quits, the bottom dropped out for a while. It's hard, but you'll get through it. He reaches across the table, angling for her hand. You just have to remember to be kind to yourself. His face is mock stern with a hint of jolly. Lisbeth shifts in her chair, trying to ease the squirm in her gut. She knows he wants to see her smile, and so she does. He beams back. You'll be fine, he says, patting the table as her hands continue to twist the linen napkin in her lap. He tries instead to hold her eyes, but against her will they slip away to the duck-filled water of the artificial lake. An awkward beat bounces between them and pings off his wine glass. When all else fails, he says, there's wine. He laughs, and it's a warm sound, inviting. She longs to laugh with him, but the sound catches in her throat. Her salad is sprinkled with sliced pears and tiny violets. She eats it with her fingers, one leaf at a time, and licks the blue cheese from her thumb like a cat. The waitress balances round white plates, the salmon perfectly crusted in hazelnuts, the fluffy mound of rosemary mashed potatoes, also perfect. And he's a perfectly nice man. Lisbeth repeats it to herself like a charm. Perfectly nice man perfectly nice. So, he leans forward, pushing a wave of friendliness. Have you figured out what's next? I'm trying. You guys have alimony worked out? She shakes her head. Oh, God, her body is hot and cold, a fever. Well, you'll sort it out. Just take it one day at a time. Lisbeth nods, not trusting her voice. She concentrates on the tiny white lights in the trees, trying to sharpen them into individual points, but they flow into one great shining mass coming at her like a freight train. It's just too much. Reaching for the side zip of her dress, she draws it down past the curve of her waist and pulls the dress over her head.
It's a wisp of pale blue silk. She folds it and refolds it into a perfect square. She tucks in the hem where her fingers have anointed it with salad dressing, then sets the dress on the table between them. His lips part and a whoosh of breath comes out. He looks at the square of silk, at the sky, at his own clean hands. All around her she feels a shifting, a reorienting of the other diners. Through the steel mesh of the table she sees her thighs are shaking, and she presses them into stillness with the flats of her palms. The metal chair is cold. She folds her legs under her, boot heels to thighs, an awkward kind of comfort. It adds four inches to her sitting height, and her bare spine becomes a lightning rod for short flickering glances and a few bold stares. The tiny white lights come back into focus, spin from the trees, and circle her hair like luminescent fireflies. The waitress hovers on the edge of the candlelight. He's given up not looking. His stare has caught and stuck on her sheer crimson brassiere, on the ribboned clasp over her breastbone. His eyes reflect the neon sign of the restaurant at the other end of the lake. Wong's Chinese flashes across his pupils. Someone coughs, and his eyes dart to his plate. He takes a deep breath, then an earnest bite of salmon. A wrongness hums in Lisbeth's belly, like a vibration of the tracks just before a train derails, but she can't stop herself. She fingers the clasp until he glances up, then flicks it open. Her breasts spill out into the night air. She wriggles out of the straps, folds the brassiere, and sets it on top the sundress. Then she waits. He's trying hard to be a gentleman. He holds his wine up to the frosted globe atop a lamppost. Light streams through the liquid and flushes his face red. He swirls the glass, clears his throat. Wine is the truth of grapes, you know. This snags the last remaining sliver of her mind. She tips back her own glass and lets the richness flood her tongue. It does have a certain edge to it. A thin stream of wine escapes the corner of her mouth. It cuts a cool line down her neck between her breasts. She watches him follow it over the pale skin of her stomach. It pools for a moment in her navel, then bleeds scarlet across the white cotton of her panties. They stare at each other across the table. There's the bottle of Merlot, half empty, and the candle sputtering into darkness. There's Lisbeth, shivering in her boots. And there's the man, throwing his coat over her shoulders, paying the tab and pulling her out of the restaurant. In the parking lot he kisses her fiercely, fingers tangled into her hair. He murmurs words into her neck that she can't make out. But just as she begins to relax into him, he pulls away. He opens her car door and pushes her gently inside. I'm sorry, he says, looking away, but I just can't take you on. Kelly Lynn H. Riley lives and writes in Portland, Oregon. Her work has appeared in journals including Flashquake, Poetry Quarterly, and Plasma Frequency. She can be found at kellylynhriley.com. The Metaphor Pusher, written and read by Aaron Fox Lerner. 
Listening time, six minutes, six seconds. Amongst the hordes of Indian and Pakistani men pushing for you to buy hashish, hostels, and Rolexes, you hear a voice offering you metaphors for cheap. You only realize it by the time you've stepped out of Chungking mansions into the dense Hong Kong night air. And by that time the voice has disappeared into the dozens of milling figures, now mobbing some poor Asian tourists dumb enough to stop for them. You've been in Hong Kong for a couple days. You were supposed to be here with your best friend as the last stage of a post-college backpacking trip. But he was called back early for a family emergency a week ago. You will be going home soon. You've been to Cambodia and Laos and Thailand and Vietnam and still don't have much to say. It looked nice and you drank a lot of beer and met a lot of other young white people. And now you're at the end of the line. Hong Kong. Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. Here the locals are rich enough that they use imported labor to try and sell you shady products. Indian men pushing drugs and African girls pushing themselves. You're at the bottom end of the travel chain, slumming it with all the other young Westerners in Chim Sha Chui. You don't have much money left. Not enough to really go out and do anything. You spend a lot of time in chunking mansions. You eventually find yourself smoking hashish on the rooftop with a Canadian from your hostel. Chunking mansions is a giant crumbling block of a building. Most of the floors are taken up by hostels. The bottom floor is filled by hawkers of cell phones, watches, calling cards, Indian food, drugs, and apparently metaphors. You had not been to the roof before. It is dirty and littered with miscellaneous junk. This is not surprising. The Canadian's travel plan for Hong Kong is simple and ingenious. He's not leaving Chungking Mansions. He came here straight from the airport and won't leave until he gets on the MTR and transfers to the train back. He can get everything he needs here. You're envious you hadn't thought of this first. That would be something approaching a story for back home, probably more interesting and definitely more dignified than telling people how you threw up four times at a Cambodian river. You ask him if he doesn't want to see a more authentic view of the city. This launches the Canadian on a spiel about how traveling is basically just following a preset group of options. The whole business is like a video game or one of those old choose-your-own-adventure novels. You ask him how so, and he answers that you have a limited series of options disguised as endless choice. Like in a choose-your-own-adventure book, you're told you have countless story options to discover, but then all you can really do is choose to continue to page 83 or page 132. You can't decide to have the character leave for a walk in the park or use the bathroom. Here, you're limited by the cage of language. Your whole experience is constructed by whom you can communicate with. Even if you do know the language, you're still visibly an outsider. You're sold the idea that to travel is to broaden your life's choices, but really everyone backpacking out here is forced into the same variety of scripts. Later, leaving Chunking Mansions again, you push through the throng of hustlers, and then suddenly there's the voice. You want metaphors, it asks. You looking for metaphors? You turn around. He's about your age. Indian, skinny, short hair, loose clothes, cheap looking. You ask him what he means. Metaphors, he says. He's selling metaphors. You want to have an experience? Something really, actually, seriously special? But how? He shrugs. How much can he pay? No, not how much. How? How can he do it? He tells you that he can't say. So do you want to buy? He's pressing you. You can't really pay, you say. You don't have much money. And he's gone. Back into the milling band. Now a man has calling cards to sell you, and you walk on. The next day is your last before taking a red-eye flight home. 
You step out and the metaphor pusher is hustling out front again. You try to question him some more, but he starts to shrug you off. If you don't want to buy anything, don't bother him, he tells you. He has other people to sell to. You ask him who. Who are these people buying metaphors? People, he says. He's not interested in talking. Everyone around him acts as if metaphors are no different than calling cards or drugs or hostel rooms. You go for a walk and come back in the early afternoon. As you walk back in, you notice the metaphor vendor is not there. You ask shyly around a little bit, but no one can say anything about him. One man says that maybe he got arrested before hustling off after what looks like a Scandinavian couple. You think that was a joke. You take the elevator up to the seventh floor to go to a cheap Pakistani restaurant. You sit down, order some curry, and then in walks the Canadian. You get to talking about the metaphor pusher down in the lobby, now MIA. The Canadian grows excited for your sake. Don't you get it, he says. That guy just gave you his services free of charge. You got what he was selling without having to pay him a dime. It's not until that night as you sit on the shuttle train back to the airport that you start thinking about what the Canadian said. And it's true, you realize with a swelling glow that starts to fuzz out the melancholy that Hong Kong had inspired in you. Here at the dead end of a voyage marked by pleasant cliches, you had your story. He gave you a tale for back home. And you didn't pay anything for his services. You think about the metaphor pusher, and you can practically feel the person about whom you were so curious stop being a human being and start being a character. And soon the whole thing is a story, a lengthy anecdote. Hong Kong is no longer a confusing, harsh place, but a setting. And that man is no longer another human lost in its flow, but a personage, and this feels right. As you settle into your seat and count down the time until you are surrounded entirely by those who look and sound like you, you recall your conversation with the Canadian about choosing your own adventure, and are suddenly struck by the most clever little framing piece, the neatest way to present your story. It all settles comfortably in your mind, and this feeling seems ready to carry you capably into your plane and across the sea, back to those who still occupy the real world in your mind. Aaron Fox Lerner was born in Los Angeles and currently lives in Beijing. He writes things, mostly short prose. Listener supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>